0: Hey. This is The Punch-Up. Oh, I thought you were saying hey to me. I'm saying hey to you and hey to everyone. Isn't it funny? We think when we're listening to ourselves talk on radio that there's an everyone out there. Wait, there isn't everyone out there. Hey, everyone. Mark did you Cantillo. say radio? I did. I'm still radio. I, that was My first media job was a couple radio programs I was on. That's how I think of this. I think there's like an audience out there listening right now. They have an 8-track player with the little cassette knob that they... Use and yeah,
1: radio. So, welcome to the punch up, uh, Mark Fideli and I, Kent Gustafson. We talk to, I guess, really special people. Is that is that how we define uh, the folks that that we speak with? Well, everyone's special,
0: so we'll talk to everyone. I think we're starting with a big picture strategy thing because that's what's on my mind and that's what I do. But also, twenty twenty four is coming, and it's kind of of interest to us to punch up into the noise and bring a different level of conversation. And there are special people that have a special way of breaking down the noise and making it not so scary to kind of transcend that because it feels scary.
1: Speaking of scary, a little bit of of news. Please go check out AmericanStrategyPress.com. Uh, we've got a great partnership there where we're working with folks to punch up their stories, get published, that kind of thing. We partner with that. Yeah, let me say more about that real
0: quick. Thank you. So we are partnering to find authors. I, years ago, fell in love with this incubator model. How do you have somebody who has everything but hasn't put it all together, needs a little coaching help and a boost, and authors who have an idea, a story that has a political, or I say geopolitical or social interest, and you're close, or you think with a nudge and with some structure, you can get that book out, and you could even get into the conversation right now. If something's gnawing at you, American Strategy Press is a platform to help you get that book done so that you could talk cool. about it, and we're here for that.
1: So now, for the show. So today, we're talking about... <laughs> Pretty crazy stuff, Roomba basketball. That's that's a key phrase. I'm gonna I'm gonna say listen for that if you're interested in Roomba and basketball. You've never heard the two in one <laughs> sense, but you will. I say it's about grand strategy,
0: but it's kind of just about putting up a mirror in front of us and saying, what kind of society do we want? And maybe more specifically, can we think critically about the society we want? Because stuff's moving pretty fast. And if we're not, I guess, taking time to look around for a while,
1: Ferris, you don't know what you're going to miss. So we're talking to two really incredible folks today as part of our uh, roundtable. We, we try and make it accessible. It's a conversation. All kinds of stuff comes up. Uh, do you want to just give a, a nutshell intro? So today we have Dale Moore and Thomas
0: P.M. Barnett. Dr. Barnett is releasing his new book, America's New Map. Today, when we're recording, Tuesday, September 26th, Dr. Moore is an innovation and technology leader, and he's a deep thinker about Navy stuff, grand strategy stuff, learning, empathy, and really has put that together in a powerful career that we'll talk about, and even now his sort of post-Navy career, all the things he's involved in. Great guy, mentor to me, and a true
1: strategic thinker. I'm excited about this. Listen in, tell us what you think. Here we go. I, uh, hey, you always gotta talk first. That's not fair.
0: That's uh, I came out first. I'm talking first. Nice. Came out. That sounds like a dangerous thing to start with.
1: I feel like Tom. You should announce. You should announce the show.
2: It's launch day. It's uh, launch day for my book, America's New Map: Restoring Our Global Leadership in an Era of Climate Change and demographic collapse. And I'm excited to be here on this momentous day for me, at least, on the punch up with you all.
1: That's exciting. And and um, Mark, you should probably do the honors and, and tell folks who Dale is. Dale Moore, a mentor and a friend, a
0: man who needs no introduction anywhere in the Patuxent River region of Southern <laughs> Maryland
3: <laughs>
0: and in parts of the Pentagon. I will allow you to introduce yourself in full, but a couple points. Dale um, Moore is an EDD. So, His doctorate has to do with education. He, in his dissertation, which he shared with me, spent time in the emotions of acquisition officers. I got to get some thoughts on that because I read huge portions of that, Dale. Couldn't believe how much you pulled out of that. And uh, that's not even half of what you do. So acquisition, technology, Navy innovation, futures, all of those areas really in your wheelhouse. So Dale, I don't know if you want to introduce yourself formally with the sort of the credibility points, but that's the stuff I love is the range of thought and the depth of thought.
3: Well, well thanks very much, Mark. And it's really a, an honor to be here today with, with you all and Tom and really encouraged by Tom's book, really raising up the, the strategic thinking at a global level, uh, not something we typically do, something that I've been trying to promote for quite some time. You know, you have to crack the code on all the things going on to figure out and formulate strategies going forward, agile and adaptive, all those kinds of things. But uh, we can get in, into all that. But, you know, I've had a long career in a lot of different places working across the acquisition lifecycle and trying to position our, uh, our nation, actually, as well as uh, the government uh, going forward. So I don't want to take up too much time with that, but uh, trying to connect all the pieces as part of a system to create value and uh, to actually lead the way for the rest of the world if we can.
1: Oh, we're glad you're here. So I'm super curious with three fellows who think a lot about national security and defense and all of that stuff. I'm supposed to play the every person. So I have to say that was a lot of language around all kinds of terms I don't understand and everything else. Tom, do you want to interpret quick? what my book is about, uh, the words involved. I mean, all of it. So what, what Dale was talking about, what your book is about, what Mark was saying, and then, sure. I don't know, anything else? Well,
2: I think the, the, the operative term here is grand strategy, which historically gets associated with the Second World War. And it was this uh, sense of our leadership trying to think through not just how to wage the war, but how to end it on the best terms and how to create a post-war that would you know, sustain the peace. So a real long-term perspective, something that wasn't just about the military aspect, but about everything else to go along with it. You know, the trade, the investment, the politics, everything. And we talk about this a lot inside the national security community. We often kind of bastardize the term and make it, quite frankly, almost exclusively about playing the player as opposed to kind of playing the board, if I could make that distinction. Playing the board means you're taking into account the entire landscape of the situation, you know, all the assets, all the different domains. You're not just focused on, I got to beat this guy in this conflict. It's, I want to shape this world. And we have that tendency to get fixated on player versus board. And I think we're at one of those moments now where, you know, I'm in Washington today and any room you walk into in Washington today there is one subject and one subject only, the national security community, and that is the inevitability of war with China over Taiwan. That really concerns me because it doesn't, you know, it's such a myopic view of the relationship between us and China, which is a whole lot bigger than Taiwan. Doesn't? I don't mean to denigrate Taiwan whatsoever, but it's a very big, complex relationship upon which the future of the planet, I would argue, depends greatly. So when you see this kind of rush And this sort of response where it's very player focused, it's concerning to me because um, there's this sense that we're not taking into account the entirety of the relationship and what kind of future we want to build based on that relationship. So we're very much caught up in that kind of narrow definition of grand strategy, making it all about stopping China's rise or containing China. Or if you listen to the media, we declare cold wars with China about every 45 minutes, as far as I can tell, on Google. And you've been you've been clocking it. That's I I had an alert for a while. New Cold War China. <laughs> and then it just flooded me because huh. we declare them all the time. It's just not a future that's attractive to younger generations. They don't look at this and go, wow, I'm just I can't wait to be a leader in America so I can rerun the Cold War this time with China. They have different concerns, different perspectives. And that's where I'd like to broaden the conversation dramatically with the book. I think there is grand strategy to be had out there. But I think grand strategy is really about dealing with structural changes in the world system. And we're experiencing three of them right now. Climate change is altering things very dramatically on a a planetary basis. We're seeing a demographic aging of the world very asymmetrically. North becoming very old, very fast. We're starting to track depopulation in places like China. Japan's been at it for a while. Italy's been at it for a while. And then we have this growth of a global middle class, which is the biggest structural change in the global economy, you know, kind of forever, for all time. So you got those three big strategic structural changes going on. To me, grand strategy is about dealing with those three This century, and yeah, China is a big part of that. But when I deal with China, I got to deal with China on all those scores. I can't just reduce the China relationship to Taiwan, as important as that may seem.
1: So I want to, I want to punch to Mark uh, because um, Mark and I have talked about his secret basketball skills, and of course, Mark is always talking about Michael Jordan. He's talking about the Greats. He's talking about Flow, and. These guys cute uh, teed you up in a way, because you're talking about player versus court in a way or board. So to speak, so to speak. Yeah.
0: Well, I'll say this, and and since we're playing, I'll be the point guard because I'm gonna actually defer and not take a shot. So I'm gonna set up Dr. Moore here for for his jumper in the corner. What readiness is to me at its highest level is what Michael Jordan did in my generation, in our eyes, right? Be like Mike was here's a guy who was player, but he understood what everybody was doing. And that came out of, you know, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson saw two, three steps ahead. There's a word, Dale, that you used a lot in the strategic cell, which I have to give credit to Dale for sort of taking a cadre of thinkers, me included, you know, in my case, shaping this sort of sports, basketball, street sense of Strategy is a flow state that you enter in your mind when you're playing at a level of you've done the reading, you've done the homework, you've cracked the code, and now all the thoughts are right there at your fingertips. And you have to have that molded by somebody who's done it. So anticipatory. Dale, talk a little bit about anticipatory. So Tom's book is a moment in time, it comes out, everyone should read it, read it. But then day two, after you've read it, now you flow with it into your observations of the world around you, right? Like your sensing systems, your your alerts about world war. So as an IT guy or a tech guy, I'm thinking, how do I move my data flows to the people who need it on the front lines, at the executive level, so they can be, Dale, anticipatory? What do we do to move the needle culturally to be ready for anticipatory leadership? Well, I, it's... Uh very rich, rich area, and and Tom identified
3: these major trends, I would, along those lines and anticipating those, I think Tom's done a fantastic job anticipating the implications of those and the movements that are going to occur. I would throw in the element of technology, what they call exponential acceleration of technology, the proliferation. We've never seen anything like this era right now. I mean, they're calling AI equivalent to the internet, They're calling AI more important than nuclear weapons. I mean, there's a lot coming out in this space, very hard to track. There's over 14,000 startups developing AI in this country alone, just to give you an idea. Mm
1: -hmm. And,
3: you know, back when we started to have computers, we had what was called the digital divide, right? People that knew how to use computers and people who didn't. And that really manifests itself. It, It kind of solved it, for the most part, solved itself over time. Smartphones certainly helped uh, to get people literate in that space. Um, mm-hmm. But we we certainly have a failure of imagination uh, globally, quite frankly. I mean, if you look at the, the, the climate change, you know, you look at the weather, you know, everything, you know, you just have to take these trends and imagine a different tomorrow, which we have a very hard time doing. So I would throw in the technology piece. But... You know, I always like to get to the root of it all and how we can succeed going forward. And I think the fundamental thing is about learning, learning, and accelerating learning and proliferating learning improves how we think about things, improves what we know and what we can, and informs what we can do. Joseph Stiglitz, uh, Dr. Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, wrote a great book. Big fan of it, called "Creating a Learning Society," and and to me that's. You know he's got all the economic data to back it up. If you think about the top twenty percent are making eighty percent of the difference in many new roads going forward, it's because they have a handle on this stuff: experimentation, prototyping, innovation. And that innovation is a whole subject we probably ought to get into. But um, anticipatory is really imagination and creativity. Looking at various scenarios, right? What's a probable outcome, a possible outcome? Looking at all these different ways it could go. You have these quote unquote black swan events, right? That um, can disrupt the whole apple cart. And you have to kind of anticipate those. This stuff, you know, earthquakes are going to happen. I mean, nice. so I think that's an important element as well.
0: So I'm going to steal from the other team. You just dunked. And now I stole it again. I got to push the ball. Tom, over to you in the other corner. Let's combine what Dale just said about anticipatory specific technology to learning, meaning let's just say Mark could wave the magic wand and the DOD acquisition genie came out of the bottle and said, Mark, you could shape the requirements for what DOD actually buys so that it buys learning, right? This would be a contract for it to use all of its tools to build what we might call decision support environments or systems that predict outcomes across a range of scenarios. That whole way of thinking, right, war gaming, U.S. versus China on climate, on demographics, on the global middle class, on imagination, and adopting technology, managing startups. Do we have a sense of how the U.S. versus China approaches actually thinking about future scenarios, because to me, what I sense about them is they have a million people assigned to do what the four of us are talking about all day long. Is that right? Is that wrong? And on the learning score, what do we need to structurally do to, in a sense, inject the insight you're through lines into the actual decisions that are being made across these sort of comparative topics, as opposed to the one big topic, i.e. player playing the player, how do we play the board by sort of doing the decision analysis across each area? Or is that the wrong approach? Because I think DoD buys decision analysis projects. They bring in PhDs, they run COAs, add risk equations. Like they, they There's a whole operations research data science field that would jump into this. But DoD isn't asking
1: for this, but they could. That's so- so, Tom, will you translate the question
2: first and then answer <laughs> it? Well, I don't even know if I can translate that question. It was a lot in there. Yeah, that's. I <laughs> I'm going to draw some distinctions, to start to unpack what he said. Thank that's you. That's awesome. Okay. I think, in terms of strategic thinking, the Chinese have a very bottom up approach. They believe in securing the environment to control actors. And we're seeing that with the spread of their surveillance technology that often gets piggybacked on to the Belt and Road initiative infrastructure spending that they're doing all over the world they will attach 5g networks they will attach surveillance networks they will add in and layer all this stuff that gives them a capacity backdoor wise to come into your universe and snoop around all they want and so we're seeing evidence of that where you know they're like collecting dna material they we uh, know that they're collecting a sort of a, a minority report file on the entire planet Uh, basically judging everybody in the world in terms of their potential to be troublesome for the Chinese government. I mean, so they really play a bottom-up sort of um, Terminator logic. You know, you don't have to kill the rebel leader that's never been born. And and they're playing it like that. We tend to be very top-down, very episodic in the way we interact with the world. We see a problem, we send our people, we take care of that problem. And then, you know, because we're not into forever wars and we have the Powell Doctrine Instinct, then we just get the heck out of there and leave. So we think if we take care of the bad actor, yeah, we probably change the environment. Our record is, you know, the list of we got them guys is long, all the way back to Noriega, okay, in Panama in '87. We get them all the time. The list of countries we fix by getting the guy is is amazingly short. So there's that tendency. We're very action oriented, top down. Get play the player. China's very play the board, okay? Now you go into the defense establishments of the two country, very different. I mean, the, the key thing for America has always been the pushing down of decision-making power to the lowest possible level. So that we got NCOs, non-commissioned officers, who can rain more havoc with a phone call or a transmission than you could get from like 10 Chinese generals talking all day long on the subject. We don't have political commissar types attached to every commander, you know, throwing in a political judgment every time there's a military judgment being applied. The Chinese do.
1: Can you explain, can you unpack that a little more? I find that that is really intriguing to me. Will you just unpack that a little more?
2: So say you got a non-commissioned officer who's running some platform, you know, like a tank or something, and they're out there doing their thing, they don't have to ask all the way up the chain to do stuff. They have broad kind of capabilities and broad authority to do things. And they train on that basis to work in harmony, jointness, all that kind of cooperation among the services. So your average non-commissioned officer in the U.S. military has more power than like a three-star general uh, in most everybody else's because they don't trust their military like we trust ours. So we push decision-making down And that means we are super responsive. We're super unpredictable, too. I mean, we're hard to figure out. And whereas, you know, very top-down version. So this is the exact opposite of what I just said about the world. This is how they treat their military. And that's the difference. Uh, That's crucial here uh, and and plays into the point about, you know, how we want to arm these people. Uh, The argument we had back in the Office of Force Transformation, which I was in, following 9-11 was, you know, get away from platforms, go network, go network like crazy. You know, and back then we were talking about the many, the cheap, the disposable, the unmanned. You know, we didn't say drones at the time because we were into UAVs then. Now it's all about drones. And, you know, those are the perfect item. Just throw stuff at them. And don't worry about how much you lose. You know, every every raid is a Doolittle raid referencing Japan and World War II because no bodies are involved. And and that's been a hard one for the military to embrace because they tend to be about, you know, the Air Force has their officer pilot ethos. And it's hard for them to go into people sitting in rooms like I am right now running joysticks and and doing that kind of stuff. It's been a a, a tough road for the Navy. I used to speak at the Naval War College when I was a professor there. And I would say the good news is, this is 20 years ago, I would say this. The good news is you may command several hundred ships in your career. The bad news is almost almost none of them are gonna have any people on them. You know, when you say that 20 years ago, it sounds crazy. When you check out the ghost fleet, that's meandering around the Indian Ocean right now. It's a fleet of ships with mm-hmm. nobody on them that the US Navy is trying out. So so
1: is reality is reality playing basketball without human beings on the court? Are we playing is this esports? <laughs> almost.
2: <laughs> almost. Almost, almost. So I'm just Rumba saying Roomba basketball. Yeah, Roomba <laughs> basketball. There's there's two different ways It's how they look at the world where we're disadvantaged and there's how we organize and operate our military where we're supremely advantaged, you know, but because of how we use our military in that very top-down way, we don't get the bang for the buck that we need. And I think we're learning from Russia versus Ukraine, you know, that the drones and everything else. And and when we think about Taiwan and trying to match Indian and uh, Chinese presence in in the Indian Ocean 20, 30 years from now, everybody's talking about this. Uh, you know, from Secretary of the Navy down to the Chief of Naval Operations, they're saying the future is going to be largely unmanned. And uh, that's going to be how we're going to get around these things. Small, cheap, disposable, unmanned. Isn't that so, isn't that yeah. what
1: happens after irreversible climate change? The whole Earth becomes unmanned. Whoa. That was a bad joke. It was supposed to be a bad joke.
0: <laughs> Some parts. Well, <laughs> Ken, okay. I want to break in real quick because... Well, well, let me just say this. One of the reasons I thought Dale would be a perfect compliment to Tom for this, our first real panel podcast, which is that 30-year Navy innovation plan ran through Dale's mind. I don't know how much of it, Dale, you could talk about, but that exact set of scenarios requires grand strategic thinking. This is kind of what I was talking about earlier, like how do the decision makers frame the board? How do you? How do we frame the board, Dale? So two things. It's thinking
3: ahead and thinking things through, right? Things are more complex and deeper than on the surface, okay? On one hand, networking is awesome and great. You get synergy of systems and systems of systems. At the same time, you've dramatically, exponentially increased your vulnerabilities. The ability to, you know, entry points for malware or whatever, whatever. So in building on what Tom said that we give what they call mission command to our non-commissioned officers, our officers, et cetera, to be able to sense and respond in a moment given overall strategic intent and policies and rules of engagement, right? The idea of, and we've been looking at this to some extent, and I believe it will come to fruition, is this idea of network optional warfighting, where we have Systems out at the tactical edge with extraordinary computing capability, given certain rules of engagement for various scenarios, and uh, given levels of authority or whatever, and they are operating at sense and respond machine speeds. So this is well faster much faster than human cognition. Obviously, human cognition runs in parallel, not in series. It's it's kind of a whole a whole different ball game, but there are areas where you can get real advantage. So speed matters, cost matters, obviously. But, you know, we have to watch. I mean, if you see Star Trek and the Borg, how did they take down the Borg, right? They had one single insert Mm -hmm. of malware and the whole thing spread like wildfire. (laughs) And as you get into viruses, computer viruses that actually sense, adapt, morph, you know, you just don't know what you got and where it's going. So this idea of a, you know, closed bubble kind of thing um, with, with um, the kind of mission command guidance is really where I think things are going to end up going. It'll be a, an orchestra in a way, but each one's going to be able to improvise.
2: If I could follow up on that, because that's, you
1: you said an, sorry, before that, let me punch in there. So you said an orchestra, but you also were talking about Roomba basketball. So, so again, to kind of dumb that down, this we're talking about literally warfare happening by a bunch of devices, robots. Mm-hmm. With, within
3: rules of engagement, That uh, and the challenge, and I'm working on this right now, is how do you test and evaluate artificial intelligence and all the applications of it? Because it will be ubiquitous. And so that's a big effort I'm engaged with right now. You know, Roomba has certain little algorithms. It does what it does. Um, you know, it, it does where you put it. The orchestra with improvisation capabilities is where you kind of want to go, where you're sensing what the other players are doing, you're responding to that, but you've got your own, your own riffs that you're doing. And I think that's kind of where things are, are going.
2: Yeah, I, w- I would add on to that. You know, there's, this, there's been this consistent understanding in the whole AI realm that, uh, you know, AI outperforms humans. But AI with humans outperforms AI. So that's what some people call the centaur model, half man, half computer. So you don't want to take the human out of the loop totally. There are all sorts of ethical and control issues with that. And, you know, I think that's where the exploration is going. But the point I wanted to add on to what Dale was saying, you know, with all these, uh, the reality of, of living in the net, and the dangers that are involved when you rely on commercial backbone and you can't have everything off, separate and untouchable from the outside world, is that that's how China really looks at their connectivity around the planet. I mean, first and foremost, it's literally cementing their infrastructure connectivity around the world with the Belt and Road Initiative, but they're very interested in establishing the 5G networks and everything else that goes along. They're very interested and very successful in marketing these uh, urban surveillance systems that they call smart city, which sounds good, safe city. Who doesn't want that? But you know, when it comes with the authoritarianism that the Chinese bring, and for example, their social credit system, where they're they're omni-veiling you, they're tracking everything you do, every data point, and they're they're taking your credit score and going up and down with it based on your behavior. You know, you got too close to a to a demonstration today you liked a a post online that was (laughs) anti-government. You know, your number keeps dropping and pretty soon you don't get to live in your apartment complex anymore. Or maybe you can't go the next province over for the holidays. And pretty soon you start to notice that people who tow the line have better lives than you do. And you start towing the line internally. You start self-policing because you want that better life. There was a brilliant uh, Black Mirror episode on this that basically explored this with likes in terms of opening up status and credentials. So we have all this. The Chinese have a version of it that's a little more sinister. By our definition, they don't see it as sinister. They see it as social harmony. And when you govern 1.4 billion people, you're a little more interested in social harmony than you are when you only got, uh, heaven forbid, 330 million people. But there's that, all that complexity going on in the environment, which the Chinese hope to take advantage of I would argue they don't want to get into a straight-on conflict with us militarily anywhere mm-hmm. because the odds of them getting it right the first time out after not being in combat for almost half a century are astronomical. It would be astronomical if they could actually pull off an invasion of Taiwan, you know, given this would be the first time ever in, in that half century. And they'd be trying all sorts of things that are very complex that they have no experience in. I mean, they could practice, they can train, but they don't have the experience that we got. Okay, but I do think they're very interested in kind of winning, not the defense war so much, but the security war, the network war, the allegiance war, the social control war. I, I feel like, and I'm misusing war with all that because it's not war, but control. we have, you know, we're Americans, so we declare war on everything. Our waistlines, <laughs> uh, the bald patch in the back of our head, uh, erectile dysfunction, whatever it is, we declare war. <laughs> But it's really about security, and it's a competition. When I look at the the question of what we're doing militarily versus what we're doing across the rest of it, you know, I think there are some clear signals. And I think, you know, the work that Dale's doing, and you know, this ghost fleet, and a lot of the UAVs, and the drone approach, and everything else, network centricity still alive and well and kicking in the U.S. military. I think that's all great. I think that's how we counter the Chinese and and deter them sufficiently in the military realm. But I think we really need to catch up on the the ground floor networking realm. I saw a recent announcement. Amazon just signed a deal to do all government cloud services for El Salvador for seven years. Hmm. Okay. That, to me, is a very interesting, positive, you know, even prepare the battlefield kind of development. I'd love to see... Amazon Web Services running government services for a number of governments in the Western Hemisphere. Because if the alternative is Huawei Smart City, I go with Amazon.
3: So, so let me just um, chime in here. So, and, and you're familiar with this, Mark. We ran uh, one of those Mowgli's, right? A crowdsourcing, it's a massive multiplayer online war game leveraging the internet. On
1: <laughs> Mowgli, Mowgli is the guy f- from the Jungle Book, right? Jungle Book.
3: <laughs> this is the collaboration tool that NPS prototyped. And in my mm-hmm. opinion, it was one of the most powerful things ONR ever funded. And I wish they hadn't cut off the funding for it and kept it going somehow. Anyway, we ran one on what was called the Design for the Singularity. Maritime singularity mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and kind of a lot of big takeaways out of there, but the big one was that, as Tom said, the man man machine teaming and the ability to for man to leverage platform technologies that have all sorts of capabilities tools right is kind of a big enabler, and and uh, and focusing on how we best adapt and adopt these platform technologies can really accelerate you know it's kind of like um, the faster we can adopt a turbocharger on our engine of our car uh, gas car right the better it is. but I, I also want two other things on, on AI One is and uh, they just announced a task force on this I think it's Project Lima on generative AI And what we're finding is is that and we found this in the game of go, and some other different things is that mm-hmm. AI is coming up with solution sets humans never would have come up with. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you, you know, you, gotta, you want that solution, but probably goes on a number of excursions or hallucinations they call getting there. <laughs> but how do you get that value and then how do you say, you know, go, So that generative AI is something where AI plays against AI, creates new and novel. Again, it's scale. We have quantum computing going to, quantum AI is going to fall on top of that. But we're also getting into artificial general intelligence. I've been involved in a Millennium project on assessing some of the implications of that. And all sorts of, you know, when you start mashing these databases together, you're seeing all sorts of outputs and things that, can be very valuable and very scary. So, um, as China pulls together all this data from the Belt and Road Initiative, right? That mm-hmm. gives them huge insights and possibly foresights that they can use strategically to achieve their strategic imperative, which is, you know, to dominate, you know, the world kind of thing, in my opinion, because that's the only path they can pursue to compensate for their illegitimacy and not being voted in. You know, it used to be their economy. Now that's kind of crumbling a bit and causing a lot of consternation. And it's about control and survival, right? So authoritarians like to expand. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's why right now with the economic downturn, that's why the danger with China and Taiwan is getting more prevalent, more prevalent because it's a distraction from the national problems that they have huge youth unemployment right tom particularly in the working class lots of males with no females that's kind of a problem real estate sector all these different things so they're in a world of hurt quite frankly and if relative to china tom you highlighted climate change a lot of their economic activity is in great danger of rising sea levels Um, a lot Mm -hmm. of the coastline that china has is very vulnerable kind of like florida so just, you know, they're, they're in a world of hurt and I just hope they don't do something that they're gonna regret.
1: Let me jump in here for, for a second and then we'll push sure. to continued conversation. What I, I wanted to punch in there with a different perspective and then I'll probably push to Mark to guide us from there. The, the perspective I wanted to ask about is, this is a lot of talk about men and Tom, you even talked about like erectile dysfunction and balding and all that, cause we're guys, we're, we're men. Mm-hmm. The warring nations of the world are driven by men. They talk about war. They talk about unmanned uh, crafts and, and fighting each other and, and video games and war and all this stuff and people dying. So I want to I jump in there from that perspective and say, let's think about the kids for a second and the women and the good people of China, the good people of the United States. What are we doing here? Because I'm worried about the conversation from an outside perspective. So let me toss the to mark and see if you can redirect us. Yeah, no, thank you. So my research on generational change kind of
0: comes to the surface. Here's why I mean that. When TV was dominant, Tom, you mentioned we got the guy headline stuff, like that's how we approach issues. That's TV's dopamine hit. We talk about it now as lakes, but they're just reverse engineering what TV did. And who was TV selling to, right? Well, Those news audiences and there's a carryover. Tom, I'm going to read a quote from your book. And this is not targeting the GOP intentionally, but I grew up in a Republican family, like a lot of people in national security who look at Trump and think he is a disruptor to any kind of grand strategy. And yet, and yet, he sees something about elitism that resonates, not for no reason. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the Borg virus, what kills the Borg is Trump or the elitism. I really don't. And I think the left has its terrible hidden barrier to adoption, which is it trusts elites too much, I think. And on the Trump side, Tom, I think you hit it. The Ford, I'm going to read it from page 120. I mean, this just jumped out at me.
1: You got to love it when people read from your book. I mean, this is good. This is this is on the spot. This is this is great. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: For everybody, I just want to say I have a ton of Republican family members, former church colleagues and friends, so I'm not dishing on like them. This is us. But this is what stands in the way of women and kids, I think, is they don't vibe with the white boy message, right? I remember on the basketball court, I was the one white boy. And it's like, you just learn how to think differently and listen differently. So I, I hope I'm channeling that. But this is, Tom, you hit on it. And I think, Dale, this is the barrier to the kind of thinking this is why ai sees solutions humans never would have come up with because too many people are afraid what are they afraid of replacement generally speaking but let me yeah let me put it in your words that four decade gap explains the gop's weaponization talking about wars of nostalgia for the america i grew up in that's maga ironically not through line maga right like we're we're in the the bubble here As well as Donald Trump's successful reboot of Ronald Reagan's 1980 presidential slogan, let's make America great again. While Reagan resold America's post World War II golden age, right, when strategy and that kind of thinking seemed inevitable to produce the US or whatever it was that was in the air, I wasn't there. But Trump repackaged that, you said. So Trump is trying to repackage the Gipper boom times. And that hides, I think, this, this nostalgia that grips the right, which won't lead it to talk about the things that we need to talk about in this 2024 election cycle, which are these topics. The possibility of grand strategy and operating with the board in view, like that's stewardship. That's thinking ahead. That's cultivating for everyone outcomes that are beneficial. The PRC is cultivating outcomes for itself. So the U.S. has a message it can give to the whole world. We genuinely – Believe in and understand the little guy having or anyone having autonomy versus the autocracy model, so here's the problem: demographic fidelity you called it the left interprets trump's maga mantra code as make America white again but i don't think the i don't think the true good hearted Trump followers that are out there see him as make America white again he see they see him as the As the bowling ball that knocks down the pin of elitism so we can get back to individual autonomy, not white, just our our way of life. And no one's broken that down. But I think the grand strategy discussion can because it forces us to think about the things like these serious topics as opposed to what the media still does is that dopamine hit. Give me the headline. Give me the link. Look over here. And now on digital, that's your surveillance system. But if we can break the cycle, the election time right now is when we punch up into it and have a different conversation. So is it about whiteness? Is it about elites? How do we break down 2024, what it's going to be about, and why it's not going to talk about these topics very much versus the need to have a serious data-driven discussion about your seven through lines, Tom, or Dale about human plus AI, thinking about solutions we haven't even come up with yet, like playing the board. I mean, these are doable. DOD could ask for it. It could be in the requirements. They could ask for these outcomes. So over to you guys for how do we vector into 2024 election cycle? Because we know what it's going to be about. And it's not going to be about the kids and the future. It's going to be about old white men or whom? I don't know on the on the left what, what really drives them. But there's too much white manness ness right there front and center in this these two candidates. How do we break this down as
2: white guys? I think we move past past the boomers as quickly as possible in political terms. You know, the boomers are the last great white dominant generation in American history. And that four decade gap that you referenced when you quoted my book, that had to do with the reality that the Republican Party basically replicates America from 1980, which is about 85% white, okay? And the Democrats today roughly approximate Uh, America of today, which is about 40% non-white. So we have one party that in racial terms is kind of stuck in the 80s and one that's in the present. And that four decade gap, I think, is a real problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. The mean age for white people in America is about 58. The most common age. The most common age for non-white people is 28. Okay. Wow. That's a big gap. And so, you know, when uh, kind of a white-dominated, male-dominated political leadership, you know, we're into our Cold War universe, and we love to reboot those franchises like uh, <laughs> Cold War with China and Cold War with Russia, because that's what, you know, males of a certain age, that's what we know. Hell, I, I go to sleep watching documentaries of World War II all the time. It's pathetic. But, you know, it's, it's how we grew up and how we were raised. Uh, that does not attract the next generation. They do not connect to that. And if we want patriotism and citizenship, then we're gonna to have to give them a different package because they're looking out to 2050 and they're seeing climate change, which we're not really addressing at all. We, you know, we will have a million fights over all sorts of culture war issues because the boomers love to relitigate the past and they're still fighting civil rights and they're still fighting reproductive rights and they're still fighting gay rights. They just can't give it up. And all these things, when you talk to younger generations, are settled. They're done. They don't want to hear about it. They want to move on to what they consider to be serious things, okay? Climate is moving at such a pace right now in terms of change. Scientists tell us that species the world over have to evolve 10,000 times the normal rate. Most of them will, most of them will die, which is why we're in this huge extinction era. In, in, on our planet's history, the probably the second or the first biggest one of all time caused by climate change. So we got all this stuff going on and we need to evolve quickly. I'm optimistic, you know, because I think we've raised a very tech savvy series of generations. I think we have the technological singularity coming online faster than we think. I think AI and everything are going to be transformative. I think that ability to adapt and evolve At 10,000 times the normal rate, as scientists say, you know, your average species is being forced to do. I think we can pull it off. Hmm. But yeah, we're going to have to say goodbye to some of these strategic perspectives that views the world solely in terms of superpowers and supremacy. You know, I think the Chinese are smart at selling, trying to commoditize, let's say, freedom, security, economic development. They're trying to commoditize those elements, those offerings, and say, you know what? You can get them from us, the authoritarian crowd, or you can get them from the West, the liberal West. It doesn't matter. It's the same freedom. It's the same connectivity. It's the same surveillance, just slightly differently altered. And frankly, look at us. We're paragons of stability in China and other authoritarian states. And look at those crazy Americans. Look what they're fighting over, you know, transgender bathroom rights. That's, that's a big one for us right now. <laughs> and it projects sort of a mania to the rest of the world. What are these people on that they have these debates as though this is the future of the world? Hmm. So I ran back a little
3: on that one. I pushed back. No, I, I, I wanted to, you know, whenever I see errant behavior, wherever it is, it's typically rooted in fear and insecurity. Bottom sure. line, right? So if you think about what happened, we offshored a lot of our manufacturing, right? Corporate America offshored to reduce their costs to be competitive. Capitalism, it was stakeholder or shareholder driven, not stakeholder driven. Mm -hmm. You know, that's came out of the World Economic Forum. I think that's a a good way to look at it. You know, you look at Mm -hmm. the decline in the number of unions that could work with these corporations. It's gone way, way down. You're seeing it with the auto workers now. You're seeing CEO pay far outpacing, or C-suite, you know, all the leaders far outpacing the workers, and so they feel disrespected, not appreciated. You know, basic leadership stuff. Quite frankly, failures of leadership, um, and the incentives and things like that. And um, without looking at the bigger picture, right? When you offshore, what kind of risk do you take? You know, now we're friendshoring, we're onshoring. And with things moving so fast, the media plays this big role in all this, right? You know, people react to emotional stimulus first, right? And, and so you're seeing all this flaming rhetoric, you know, for these different mm-hmm. issues. And it's like a dopamine rush, right, for these folks, adrenaline rush. And it's addictive. And, and that is mm-hmm. problematic in my mind. But like I said, learning and education need to be at the forefront to keep pace on all this stuff at a scale where we can compete, right? But we haven't been an inclusive society so much, right? We're trying to trying to move that forward. We haven't thought about, you know, we don't operate like the golden rule, right? And, and capitalism, you know, we don't have a purely capitalistic society. It's balanced with socialists and Marxists and all these different factors into this amalgam that's really kind of a stoichiometric balance. It balances itself based on the feedbacks that occur. And um, right. we just haven't evolved to that sweet spot yet of balance. And I think Trump probably um, resonated. I mean, if you think about it, I would—I'm hypothesizing here—but I would guess that many on the right, supporting—I'll say the extreme right—I'll bet they all watch World Federation Wrestling. Right? It's about fighting for something. You know, we want a fighter. Right, it's it's that kind of thing because I feel disrespected and unappreciated. You know, no one's taking care of me. But oh, by the way, those lefties are funding all these social programs, and all these other people are getting the money. And where's my money? Right? What's in it for me? So I think there just needs to be this balance of support structure and opportunity space, and we have to recalibrate kind of how we work as a system
0: uh, to compete internationally.
2: Yeah, I think those are really good points.
0: That's awesome. I know we're getting close to time. Kent, I want to put a big loop around this. First of all, Tom, Dale, fantastic. I mean, we scratched the surface, but we went really deep. We like punched holes in the ground like those miners who are looking for gold. If we did this again, we'd be pumping out lots of gold. So I hope we can. Pardon the weird metaphor. But I think an election cycle, This is, so one of our goals is to punch up into the noise, right? So women, kids, the future, they want an election process. Here's my guess. Here's my summary of what we've talked about today that allows them to feel safe to opt in to discussing with their peers about somewhat scary, fearful, fretful, complex issues that feel way bigger than them. But if they don't do it, if they outsource that kind of thinking, learning to others, corporate interests, politicos, we'll just say generally powerful white guys. It's not just that, but you know, that's an easy way to say it. If they can't find a way to on-ramp into the election process where they feel some amount of safety and empathy, the people who pound their chest the hardest are going to win. They're going to win the agenda. And in my community, you know, like, like again, I'm, I'm the non-PhD here in my master's program. We had a big focus on agenda setting, how the media sets the agenda. They don't tell people what to think, but they set the agenda. That's still going on because the media the TV media, and the digital media are now all in this psychological dopamine game. But what's important to note is that that is still following whatever people do. If people choose to make the election cycle something that they proactively play and talk about the board rather than the players where we started, if people just do that, just don't tolerate the noise, shut it down, Like my wife says when I'm talking too long or going in my long circles, up comes the hand. (laughs) Mark, stop. People need to feel empowered to say, Kent, like you're – stop. We're talking about words we don't understand. This isn't about the shareholders. This is about the stakeholders. And the people who deal in the outcomes of grand strategy is everyone. (laughs) So if the election process doesn't include – isn't inclusive in a way that includes all the voices – the shareholders will win and they'll put up their front people and the stakeholders won't have a voice. So that to me, that's the the essence of the punch up. That's why America's new map needs to be front and center, not as like necessarily the right answer, but that's the point. You're not offering exactly the answer. You're offering the through lines, but Tom over to you for the final, if we did opt in to America's new map and said, this is what we're going to do in 30 seconds how would you frame the growth or the, the future picture that you offer so that it's digestible for all of us to feel like stakeholders in that vision you've laid out so we can grab the through lines and do
2: our part, right? Okay. The, the basic argument in the book is that the global south, or what I call middle earth in the book, uh, basically half of humanity living in a swath stretching 30 degrees north and south of the equator that's the part of the world that's going to be devastated most by climate change. That's the much younger part of the world relative to the demographically collapsing north. And that's where the global middle class is largely centered. So this part of the world is going to experience extreme stress next three, four, five decades. And the argument, the core argument in the book is better for the north to integrate southward preventively to socialize that risk, just like EU and NATO did by expanding eastward and dealing with the Russians that way, we could deal with climate change and these other structural changes similarly with a north integrating south perspective. Hmm. And so that's a rethinking of our relationship with Latin America. And if I had a simple goal that would would break the logjam of uh, a failure of imagination, as Dale says, it would be to get the 51st state, however achieved. Because once we got the 51st state, especially if it was non contiguous, which we've done twice, obviously, it would reopen this notion of what can America be? What do we want it to be? How do we want to share our power and wealth in the future with our neighbors to help them develop, to help them bring themselves up? How do we want to defensively deal with China's encroachment throughout the Western mm-hmm. Hemisphere so there could be a defensive aspect to it? Just to get us out of this mindset that. You know, what we are about right now is building walls. Because I, I, the future to me is North-South integration. We're not in that game. Uh, the EU is, in practice. China is. India talks about the global South all the time. So does Putin. We barely acknowledge it. And instead, basically offer sanctions and or defense packs. That's how we do it. Sanctions or, de- or defense agreements with you. That's the limit of our integration. We have to start being about something else. I think that kind of vision of an expanding America that would be open to evolution and change would be very exciting. I think there's huge economic potential in it. Mm. Uh, I think all this technology that's coming about In the green revolution, is going to be the major driver of economic growth going forward. So I look at it as profit, not as some sort of obligation to the planet. Even though I'd like to have an obligation to the planet. I got six kids. I'd like to leave something nice behind, not just trash the place on my way out. I like that. So anything that kind of breaks the mold, I don't think we're going to get it in terms of the people. You know, Biden versus Trump is not going to break anybody's mold. It's going to be the god-awful last boomer on boomer not technically, but frankly, boomer on boomer conflict. And I hope we never have to endure this ever again. I think it's going to be so bad that nobody's ever going to want to do it again. We're going to probably jump a generation down to at least Gen X, and we're going to see some uh, millennials running the next time around. Hmm. And I think that's going to be fantastic and and logjam breaking. And I can't wait, but uh, I think we have to endure a pretty bad election coming up.
1: I kind of want, want Dale to give us a three-word summary of the call.
2: Three words.
3: Enlightening, inspiring, and hopeful.
1: Nice. Do you want to explain?
3: Yeah, I, I think we're exploring spaces rarely explored and trying to consider things rarely considered. I think there's tremendous potential here. I mean, to solve a problem, you have to identify what it is at the root right? And we're working on that. I I was going to suggest that the combination of uh, Citizens United decision that opened up big money and dark money and how that affected our media has caused um, chaos and confusion and insecurity and fear. And, um, you know, they're driven by clickbait for advertising dollars. And we're not getting good reporting. We're not getting that we're getting things people want to hear in emotional terms it's getting them all spun up and they're not thinking deeply they're not thinking through you know and they're we're building silos or tribes and that are you know building walls around themselves and it's about identity mm-hmm. people want to feel appreciated and respected and the conditions right. we that we've allowed to evolve have been the antithesis of the critical thinking kind of society that we need to explore these complex, difficult problems.
1: Right. Nice. Mark, you want to close us on basketball? (laughs) Well, I I do think we
0: are thinking like players in the game on the board. I think my grand thought about 2,500 years of literacy, the reading mind, versus now internet natives have a more oral mind. There's a whole, that's Mm. separate, right? But it is different. (laughs)
2: Yeah. The
0: depth of that is our brain is optimized to search for pathways. And if our pathways are arguments in businesses or arguments in scholarly domains to get the next grant, we're going to move into Kantian-Cartesian abstractionism, not to get too scholarly. But that's where our brains go. Kids don't opt in because they don't talk like that. They don't think like that. They're talking about Riz. They're talking about Drip. My kids are talking about totally different words, but they make sense to me when I understand that they're on the board. They view themselves as on the board. The whole thread of, you know, climate change, demographics, technical change, the global middle class means to them, I think, is an exciting realm of inclusion with a very scary set of unknowns that they're going to figure out together. Like intuitively, instinctually, they know we're not going to solve it wherever
2: we end up they're assuming they're going to solve it, I think. I agree. I think they're a lot more confident. They're a lot more confident than we give them credit. That You know, having been raised on video games and everything else, they have no problem failing 37 times before they get 38, (laughs) right? I agree. They just don't care. Uh, You know, Ed Sheehan, the the British singer, came out with an interview. Sheeran, Sheeran, Sheeran. Yeah. Yeah show my age. Ed Sheeran came out with an interview recently where he said, you know, my fear for the future is this, is this uh, unacceptability of failure. And I don't think he's talking about his generation. I, I don't think he's talking about millennials or Gen Zs. I think he's talking about boomers. And especially in, in, in America, where we are so tightly and evenly divided, that we look at any sort of imagination or any sort of risk-taking as just way too dangerous. You know, we got to hold the line against the opposite number, because if we don't, they're going to ruin everything if they get back in power. That's right. And we're, we're sort of stuck into this mindset where we can't question and we can't experiment. And it, I think the younger generations are, are really fed up with that. They're very eager to tackle these problems and... You know, sometimes the generation just needs to get the hell out of the way. And I think that's definitely the time of the boomers right now. You saw that cover on the New Yorker magazine this week. It's a cartoon of all our major political leaders walking with the walkers across an intersection. I mean, this is not the future. They don't have the future in mind. It's time to move on. And, uh, you know, oh boy, what I wouldn't give for both these guys to step down and then have Next generation conversation. Yeah. Yeah. What that would be in terms of relief and excitement and engagement would be fantastic, other than this, you know, relitigating the past that we're living in now, which is just strategically, it's hell. I'm going to make two announcements right now on the spot. We're playing,
0: right? So, first, there's a word for somebody who is scared in the background, the shareholder, not in the game. And Tolkien, to use your Middle Earth language, I think those were the race. I think those were the race. But basketball, there's a word that starts with B. I'm not going to say it here. Guys who step on the court who are afraid or try to control things, very rulesy. That's just how we play basketball. There's a, there's a word that starts with B and it rhymes with riches. And that's what those guys are thought of on the streets. Seriously, you walk in, where's your game? What do you got to bring? These leaders who aren't on the field because they're not – Stakeholders, they're shareholders, they're above the system, right? No, we're in it. We're in it. So here's my second announcement. On this podcast, Kent, could I do this in real time? Sure, it's too late, right? I'm, who wants to run for vice president? Who wants to court the American people's interest in being supported by whoever Kennedy, being the difference maker? Who wants to be the one who gathers the support? for real conversation, serious thinking and say, hey, I'm about that. And then let them be so meaningful from the center that either party could gravitate towards them and grab them. It's a crazy, fantastical thought. But here's why it could work. The noise of the media does not resonate with a massive voting block. All that's needed is some signal to this group. And I don't think the person who would lead is going to be definitely Republican or definitely Democrat. They're going to be different. And I think that those people exist right now and they're waiting in the wings. And I say, don't wait in the wings. So if, if you think you can be a difference maker and you see not left, right, you don't see East, West, you see North, South, you see problem solving, and you want to run for vice president, as in be ready for somebody to pick you, you could use YouTube. You could have a whole counter election cycle where somebody just granularly builds up their own following
2: and they're the kingmaker. I don't think what you're describing is that crazy. I think it's actually happening to a certain extent. You know, Nikki Haley's running against Kamala Harris right now. And Ramaswamy is obviously running to be Trump's vice president. Uh, You know, I think the argument about the next generation is there. And what's so interesting about it is that it's three with uh, Indian backgrounds.
3: Uh-huh. Those three, That's true. you know,
2: what a weird change that is. And, and what a harbinger that Refreshing. is, much like it was in 2016 when Rubio and Cruz ran. And all of a sudden we had two Hispanic, you know, two Latino guys running for president. Nobody had anything to say about it. Now we have kind of this three person crew debating over who should be the next generation leader. And they're all of Indian extraction. That is very telling and interesting and shows some of the impatience in the system that we're stuck with these two octogenarians, frankly. And, uh, you know, we're talking about the past, not the future. And it, it's disturbing.
3: I, I, I think the electorate needs to think of themselves as their own independent entity and not part of a tribe and assess yeah. all these issues personally versus politically. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I tend to move one way or the other across the aisle as the policies evolve that I think are the right policies, period. I mean, right? I don't wear a tattoo on my forehead, you know, but I think that, that that self-identity and that the ability to say, hey, I disagree with this in this party and I agree with that and I disagree with this in this party, you know what I'm saying? I mean, the ability to have independent thought where, you know, earn my vote because you have a majority of the best thinking I think would go a long way
2: yeah the, the american democracy is based on the middle and not just the middle in terms of ideology it's the middle in terms of income and that you know that's how we regraded the very unfair landscape of the gilded age uh with teddy roosevelt republican and then we did it again after the roaring 20s with another roosevelt uh democrat franklin you know i think we're at one of those uh kind of progressive regrading of the system. There's just too much inequality. There's too many people feeling left out. There's too much sense of threat. I think the next generations already do this. You know, a lot of the things we're discussing here, you know, I have uh, four Gen Z's kids. One of them is my, my perfect avatar. He's, a, he's a, a young white male. My son, Jerome, he was born in the year 2000. Everything we're talking about, he's lived it from like day one. He's like been moving through this bubble that is post-white majority America. It's digital native. It's uh, uh, climate change native. It's all these native things. And what amazes me about him, he's a television reporter now, Mm -hmm. is that, uh, you know, there is no woke for him. There is, all this stuff is, it's not up for discussion. It doesn't have to be explained. He has to explain it to me almost every time I open my mouth. But he doesn't have to think about it. He's very comfortable with this world, and he's ready to address it. And you know, the, the more we get out of the way, old-timers, boomers particularly, I think, and let this generation come forward, he's a Z, yeah. and I got a couple of millennials uh, forward-leaning above that, I, you know, I think we're going to be in good shape, because I think they have the, the critical skills, they have the ability to think and act on the basis of that middle kind of perspective. And I think we're going to head into a progressive era where we fix a lot of things and make a lot of money and uh, do the world a very good turn. Uh, We just need to reimagine ourselves.
1: So I'll I'll close us here. This has been great. I loved the idea of orchestration that Dale brought up in understanding some pretty complex stuff. But also orchestration is thinking about the middle and the highs and the lows. And that's the world I come from, the creative place where... What's the balance? What's the middle? What are people needing to see? How are we going to get some participation, right? Pop music. So thank you all for being part of this orchestrated event today. Um, Some amazing voices (laughs) punching through and yeah, saying some unexpected things. Real quick, Tom, where can people get your book? Give us
0: the last thumbnail for folks that have hung in here to get to the end.
2: So again, the title is America's New Map, Restoring Our Global Leadership in an Era of Climate Change and Demographic Collapse. You can buy it pretty much anywhere books are sold. Online, you can buy it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's all over the place. It's not hard to find. Uh, You can buy it as an audiobook. I recorded it myself. You can buy it as an e-book. You can buy it as a hardcover. It's awesome. Dale, when's your book coming out?
3: Oh, it's it's noodling around, Tom. I did want to add one thing here. I know we're at the end, but It's this idea of having a heart and having some empathy within our society, not overly so, but in balance to, I'll call it the capitalistic greed. And I think that there's a tension there and, you know, kind of the golden rule applies, I think. And I think that if we can lead with head and heart, I think we will be in the best possible place.
1: Amen to that. I like it. Thank you very much. Appreciate all of you. Can't wait till the next one, Mark. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. That was an amazing uh, chat, you know, roundtable discussion. I was a fly on the wall for some of that. The the China-Taiwan stuff, I'm not really in the loop, but fascinating times we live in. Yeah, there's nothing worse than hearing
0: people are really seeing war inevitable, in positions where they actually have to prepare it's not just talk but hey i think there's a, an out a big out that we uncovered today it's leading with heart and mind it's being empathetic on one side and then it's really thinking quickly about all the or thinking about all the things that are happening quickly
1: and thinking deeply so these guys gave me a sense of hope i don't know about you it did somewhat. I, to be honest, it was kind of dark. So I, I was thinking about uh, some good old um, children's books. Speaking of children, so uh, one is the Butter Battle Book, and the other is the Lorax. So the Lorax, um, yeah, two Dr. Seuss books. The the Lorax, you know, I I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees, right? That's this, right. This, things are changing ten thousand times faster. Can the species adapt? What an amazing comment from Tom, right? And then this Butter Battle book, it, it's the Yukes and the Zooks having this escalation, right? Because we, we were mm. talking about how wars yeah. happen and they escalate. And it's there, you know, one one guy's dro- uh, holding a bean, which is like represents a nuclear weapon. And the kid's asking grandpa, like, who's going to drop it? Will you or will he? And grandpa says, we will see. <laughs> you know, so it's a cliffhanger.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what? Even as you say that, we will see this idea that we're being put in front of a spectacle, television, our thoughts, there's such a way of disengaging without even thinking about it by being told we will see about what's happening means we're not in the game. We're on the sidelines. That's my positive takeaway is whenever you awaken to sort of the the playing field, if you're on the court winning or losing, if you're losing, you play harder. If you're winning, you actually kind of usually sort of slink back a little bit so the best part about the darkness or in a basketball term losing is we up our game we level up so i don't know i'm choosing to believe that because maybe my therapist would want me to do that or something but <laughs> i think that matters right i think what we added are the attitudes that we choose matter
1: 100 percent. so in closing i was really struck by the notes of darkness in here, but also the hope, mm-hmm. and also the the willingness to confront, you know, whiteness. That was a very and and maleness. That was a very interesting part of this discussion that's so needed. Just talk about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, we're in the game. We're white males, right? We
0: we're the ones that generally have the privilege and the benefits. Our community also is the one that generally is angry about. I'll say things we picked up on, things we talked about, and and it's not just resentment. Not to start a whole new show, but I think this pivots to the rest of the season, right? It's the ability to step back and say, I'm being manipulated because I'm mad. Why am I mad? Well, I'm spiteful because I work hard. Money gets distributed to those others that around me I see not working hard. And that whole thing, that four decades gap that Tom talked about, this uh, sort of post-war period growing up in that, that was the stew. But inside that stew, there's a lot of black kids and white kids on basketball courts. There's a lot of kids playing. Now there's a lot of kids gaming. And it's just assumed that inclusion wins. Like the culture wars on that front is over. But there's a lot of white males that are still angry about it. And that might be the headline of 2024, opposed to all these other things we're talking about. So it's it's refreshing to have guys be guys, just dudes talking. And bring up whiteness and maleness in a way that I think is safe for others to hear and say, All right, all right, these guys aren't just built for war and therefore terrible. There's some heart going on in there, and there is some heart going on in here. So even though head, maybe not.
1: Like the uh, it's like the Grinch. Yeah. It's in the Grinch, he's got it he, <laughs> yeah. at the end of the story, he had a heart. So yeah, That's right. It's like that. So Thank you for listening in. If you listen this far, we we appreciate you. Keep listening. Also, you can go over to uh, AmericanStrategyPress.com. We're doing some really cool stuff.
0: Welcome. We'd love to hear your voice and uh, get your feedback. Cheers.
1: Yep. Uh, What do the kids say? Like, subscribe. Uh, They do hearts with their hands. Smash that bell. What is smash that bell? I've never heard that. That's it. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody.